Good morning. Well, while the very idea of Britain leaving the EU has Irish politicians and economists in a tizzy, are Britain's right to call time on the monster that the EU has become? Or are they guilty of old-fashioned nationalism, an outdated and divisive concept that has only led us to wars, violent and trade? Brexit is our talking point this morning. And in studio is John Bruton, former Taoiseach and EU ambassador to the United States. Dan O'Brien is chief economist with the Institute of European and International Affairs and columnist with Independent newspapers and Cormac Lucy is chairperson of the Hibernia Forum and columnist with the Sunday Times. So if you were in Britain, how would you vote in the referendum on June 23rd? Leave or remain? 53106 for 30 cent and at talking point NT for tweets. Uh, but John, I suppose I should ask you first this morning about what you think of the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil agreement. We have finally what they're calling government formation. How do you feel about it? Well, I am concerned that uh, we're going to have difficulty finding enough money to pay for a water distribution network that has been neglected uh, over the last 30 or 40 years because of political pressures. And we had a system in place which would have given it an automatic stream of income that would have insulated it from the ups and downs of politics, and that's now being sacrificed. I also think we're at risk of creating a situation where debts to the state can be ones that you can choose not to pay if there's a sufficient political agitation. And that, uh, I think, is going to have difficulty in the future if debts to the state, whether for water or for property tax or for income tax, can be not paid by some people and paid by others. Uh, That's the sort of problem that Greece, for example, got itself into, and we don't want to be going down that road. Having said all of that, on the other hand, I think we, we clearly we needed a government. I don't think another election would have changed the situation very much. So we would have been back in July in exactly the same situation we're in at the beginning of May. So I think in that sense, an agreement was, was uh, inevitable and necessary. Um, I also think, oddly enough, that when one is in a minority government situation, as Fine Gael and the independents will be, they can either be extremely cautious, in which case I think they'll only last a relatively short time and achieve relatively little, or they can accept the fact that they're in a minority, that therefore they don't have full responsibility for everything, that the responsibility has to be shared by others, and they can be quite daring and deal with issues that otherwise have not been dealt with. For example, why are health services, we can never estimate what it's going to cost more than a month in advance, that all the estimates are wrong. Why is our educational system failing to produce the sort of people that compete can compete in a much more competitive world? Um, and are we doing? Is our pension system sustainable? Very, really difficult yeah, questions I, like that. I wondered: uh, is it not just about a new kind of government, but what's going to be essential is a new kind of opposition? It's going to be, be a combination of opposition and government, uh, either making the choice to face some long-term problems where the responsibility will be shared and therefore easier for any individual party to bear, or are they going to take the cautious approach? Mm-hmm. I hope that they you know, look at the actual profound problems of the country and deal with them, because in the light of the discussion we're going to have about Brexit, we've got to become hyper-competitive mm-hmm. as a country to survive in what's going to be a much more difficult world in the next 10 years 
years, even than it was in the last 10. Oh, God, that's not a great prospect. Well, look, thanks, John, for that. And I'm going to go now to Anne Widdicombe, author, former Conservative MP and columnist with The Daily Express. Uh, Good morning, Anne. Good morning to you. I gather that you took some time to decide how you'd vote, but you have now decided to vote for Britain to leave the EU. Why have you made that decision? Yes, that's quite true. I did take time. I've never been, uh, if you like, a rabid Brexiter. Uh, But the more I looked at uh, the situation, the more I became convinced this is is going to be our only chance. I mean, there isn't going to be another one uh, for us to take back control uh, over our own laws, our own borders, our own administration of justice. And I think if you want Britain to be responsible for Britain, uh, then there is only one way to vote. I'm also influenced by the fact that every other argument um, people are split on. Uh, You you look, for example, at former chancellors of the Exchequer. Now, uh, you would think they know exactly uh, what the the economic situation is, uh, yet they have divided views. Lawson and Lamont say out, uh, Clark says in. Academics are similarly divided, politicians are certainly divided, but the one issue that there appears to be no division on is we will have more autonomy if we leave. Right, but is autonomy another word really for old-fashioned nationalism? You know, and, and that was the concept that brought us to wars and division. And the one thing you can say about the EU is that by pooling sovereignty, we put a stop to that. No, you can't say that at all. What has put a stop to wars and divisions among Western European nations is straightforwardly NATO. Uh, That is what has put a stop, and we will always be members of NATO. Indeed, we're leading members of NATO. Uh, So there's no question at all that coming out of the EU would would somehow suddenly cause wars and disruption of the peace. Uh, That is nonsense. We've moved beyond that. And certainly you can't say autonomy uh, is simply nationalism. If so, there was never any case for American independence or African independence or anything else. I mean, every nation has the right uh, to determine, and, and certainly where there's a democracy involved, as there is here, to determine its own law. Now, you referenced the division between, say, former chancellors of the Exchequer and economists, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, the outcome would be uncertain if you left. You know, that, that you could definitely say that much, that you don't know what exactly might happen in terms of trade agreements and that. So would you not agree that uncertainty is never a good thing for a country? No, because first of all, I mean, let's get over this. We're not going to be coming out the very next day. Uh, and then uh, moving around uh, in in a complete mishmash of uncertainty where we don't know what the trading agreements are. Uh, The fact is a status quo will be maintained while we negotiate uh, fresh agreements. I mean, that is exactly what will happen. There will be a timetable for withdrawal. There'll have to be. I mean, just consider alone the statute book. Our law is completely interwoven with EU law. You can't let that collapse like a pack of cards. Uh, There's going to have to be a proper, sensible programme for withdrawal. So, A, I don't think there has to be the level of uncertainty that some people are predicting. Uh, B, we have been there before, you know. Some of us can remember before we went into the EU. Uh, But lastly, um, and some businesses indeed are saying they believe that it will be much better for them. Uh, to be out of the EU. But finally, even if there is a bit of uncertainty, uh, that is not a reason uh, for giving up the freedom of future generations to, uh, to govern themselves. That's like saying we're so put off by Dunkirk we can't focus on D-Day. 
Um, okay, well, thanks, Anne. <clears throat> Look, while I have you on the line there, would you mind if I just asked you about this row about Ken Livingston? Yeah. Um, he's been accused of anti-Semitism because when he was defending Naz Shah, he said something like Hitler was a Zionist because in 1932 he wanted to send all the Jews back to Israel and Livingston is facing a huge backlash now. Yeah. Do you think that's deserved? Do you think he is anti-Semitic? Look, only he knows the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. What I do think is uh, that the Labour Party should certainly have a full investigation. And look at all the things that he has said um, and not just take a, a line and, and then try and magnify it. But if it is shown um, that that line is actually <coughs> typical of his thinking, then yes, of course, that is anti-Semitic. And yes, of course, if the Labour Party has any sense of decency, it will take action. Okay, Anne Widdicombe, thanks so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Um, Cormac, on that anti-Semitism thing and the Labour Party, what's your take on that? Well, I think the British Labour Party has reaped a substantial uh, electoral harvest from targeting and winning the Muslim vote in Britain. Uh, There are substantial uh, ethnic communities there and the Labour Party is streets ahead of everybody else in harvesting that. And I think that has led them to uh, sail too close to the wind on this question. So they've got several MPs who've made several comments that are like uh, the comments made by this uh, lady MP who's who've been suspended. And I also get the feeling that Ken Livingston has been making this comment internally within the Labour Party for a long time and getting away with it. And it's only when he makes it in public in highly charged circumstances that suddenly he is pulled up on it and he's surprised by mm. this. <clears throat> uh, and I think to to instrumentalise the the Holocaust uh, as a political stick with which to beat Israel is pretty low. Mm. And regardless of the historical detail, I think it's 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 profoundly mistaken. And I think the Labour Party does have a deeper problem. It's it's more than just one or two utterances. They've, there are several almost rotten boroughs uh, where they've managed to mobilise largely Muslim voters. And I think, you know, they've, they've had people like George Galloway within their party. He's now left. Uh, and I think they've got a deeper problem than just one or two individuals. OK. Um, well, look, John, I'll go back to you on our main topic this morning, Brexit. <clears throat> um, you know, would, who would Brexit hurt more, Britain or the EU? It's interesting that Han Willicombe made no reference at all to the damage that Brexit could do to the European Union. Uh, the removal of Britain from the European Union, or its removal of itself, will change the balance of power within Europe. And we have seen federations break up, the Yugoslav Federation, the Soviet Union, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, all broke up because the balance of power within the Union became one that wasn't sustainable either. The biggest party was either paying too much or alternatively had too much influence. And Britain leaving, I think, will greatly diminish the European Union. And it seems to me that Britain seemed to take the existence of the European Union for granted, that it'll always be there, it'll keep Europe quiet, and meanwhile Britain can go and do its own thing at no cost. I think that's you know a, a major historical mistake. Britain uh, needs to be in Europe, not just for its own sake, because... Um, but also for the sake of Europe. And for its own sake, uh, it needs to enhance its sovereignty by being in Europe. By being in the European Union, 
Britain is part of a bloc which gives it a say in all sorts of rules that apply to British exports. So and if Britain leaves, it won't have a say it, to the same degree in those rules that are vital to British exports. And Britain is a trading nation. It exports far more now than when it joined the European Union as a proportion of its GDP. And therefore, it needs to have more influence on the world around it. But by withdrawing, uh, it diminishes that influence. And that seem, that po- point seems to have been entirely missed by Anne Whittacombe. I think also she's looking at this completely as a Tory. And this is all due to divisions within the Tory party. She mentioned previous chancellors who were in favour. Or she didn't mention the two Labour chancellors as if they didn't exist, Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling. They were sort of untermentioned people. But they're in favour. But it, what this shows is that not only is Britain enclosing itself from the rest of the world, the parties in Britain are enclosing themselves in their own community where they're talking to one another and not thinking of the wider world. Um, Dan O'Brien, <coughs> you were writing about this in the Irish Independent and you said Britain decoupling from Europe has always been a strategic nightmare that Ireland has never wanted to face. If our single most important partner leaves Europe and drifts out into the North Atlantic, we will be pulled between two poles that are both vital for our prosperity. But I'm wondering, like, why do we have to be pulled between uh, Britain and the EU? Why can't we just trade with them and continue our relations with them side by side? Well, we will do that. But I think it's very important to say that if Britain leaves the EU, we have no capacity to have a trade deal with Britain. So Dublin and London cannot do a trade deal. When you join the European Union, you give up the right to have trade deals with other countries. That's why TTIP, this negotiation between Brussels and Washington, our economic relations with the United States, as we all know, are absolutely vital to us. Actually, but will you explain that TTIP thing? Because we've already had a text in about it. Okay. Yeah. So, so TTIP is basically, the idea is that it's a trade and investment arrangement between the EU and the United States that will lower barriers to trade and investment relations across the Atlantic. Um, that's what's been yeah, negotiated. But yeah. the important, just to bring it with the, if you want to go into it in more detail, no, 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 go, that's go grand. ahead. Yeah. But the, 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 um, the, the issue is that when you join a trading bloc like the EU, you, you can only have one, you, you negotiate together with third countries, okay? So this is very important. And, and it was something that really struck me. I was giving a talk in, in London to a bunch of business people, British business people who are I- I- involved in the Irish economy. And they had a general attitude that, oh, look, it'll be okay. We'll organise something. And it's really important to say to people, we will, we cannot do a bilateral deal with London if we stay in the EU. Mm. We'd have to leave. Because the relations between any EU country and another country outside the EU is done between Brussels and that country, as TTIP. So we're going to be in a position where, if Britain leaves, we the, the way, the amount of tax tariffs, they're called, that... Irish companies or companies based in Ireland will pay on exporting into the UK will depend on the on the on the trade deal that's negotiated between Brussels and London as they leave. Now we don't know how how much uh, those new taxes are going to be. But the the, the just coming back to Anne Whittacombe's point about chancellors disagreeing. That is that that's actually nonsense. Okay? The overwhelming view amongst people who think about economics is that Brexit will be bad for everyone, and that's on a, uh, for a very simple reason. 
that economists disagree on most things, but w we nearly all agree on, on something, and that is that the more barriers you have to commercial interaction, the less commercial interaction you have. We know that if Britain leaves, there are going to be new barriers to commercial interaction between Britain and the EU, including ourselves, and that will lower commercial ac uh, interaction activity. I'm not saying that it's going to be a wasteland. We'll all, the world will go on. It won't change radically, but we will all be a little bit poorer. We could be considerably poorer. We don't know, it's very difficult to predict these things, but we know that there will be new barriers and that will lower commercial interaction. Uh, Cormac Lucy, I think in Britain they're calling um, that argument the politics of fear. Um, what is your opinion on, on the effects of Britain leaving if they do? What would you do if you were there? Well, as an Irish person, I think it, it, it would be damaging to us if Britain left. We're like a child that has two parents. You know, we're dependent economically. Well, we're not dependent, but we're quite reliant on both Britain and the EU. And if they were to go separate ways, that would be difficult for us, like a child whose parents split up and you'd be trying to juggle one against the other and, and prosper as best you could. Uh, but I think that the, I think there, there are three real motivations for British people to, to consider leaving the EU. Uh, I think one is Britain has never felt comfortable in the EU. For them, being in the EU and sitting at a table beside Luxembourg and Belgium represents a demotion from empire. Whereas for us as a newly independent country, sitting at a table beside France and Italy is a promotion. And this isn't the first referendum. We had a referendum in 1975 when the Labour Party in Britain was split on the issue. I think a second issue giving rise to concern is immigration. And the large numbers of particularly East Europeans that have come into Britain uh, since EU expansion in 2004. And that is combining with a global economic problem for the developed world of low income growth, worries about inequality, people at the bottom fearing and experiencing downward wage competition. And are they right to fear it? They are right to fear it as individuals and mm. as blocks within society. And I'm not sure that societies have, have, have done well to separate the fact that, as Dan says, lower trade barriers and tariffs are good there is a benefit to us all if we lower them, but we need to make sure that, there, that those sections within society who may lose out as a result of that get compensated. And I'm not sure if that has been handled well. And th you know, those blocks of uh, poorly educated, white, working class English people, that, that's where UKIP is getting mm. its main level of support. But there's a third, and I think much more important reason why people may be turning towards Brexit, and that is, I think the European Union has overreached itself. And, you know, the, the, the logic of joining any society, the logic of forming a company is that the whole is worth more than the sum of the parts, that when you do it together, we all benefit. And the EU and the EU member states benefited enormously from what the EU did together up until, say, 1990. The lowering of trade barriers, the uh, allowing of free travel, huge benefits and Ireland was a huge beneficiary. But what the EU has done since then in terms of a common currency, in terms of uh, common migration policy, in terms of common foreign policy, they haven't worked. The common currency has unleashed disaster across economic disaster across the periphery of the Eurozone in Ireland, Spain, Portugal, Greece, Italy. 
which doesn't get much coverage. And those countries have been individually told it's not it's not uh, you EU. It's mm. you, you. It's Italy's problem. It's Fra- mm. Spain's problem. It's Ireland's problem. When, when we have to ask ourselves, why did all of these similar crises erupt at around the same time after these countries had joined the common currency? Common borders. Do you think that the Greeks would have allowed a million people across their territory if they hadn't believed that the Germans had the welcome met out? If, if we had been back, say, in 1980, and the Greeks had been running their own immigration and they were faced with this apocalyptic number of people coming, they would have turned them back. But it was only the fact that there was sort of a half EU policy and that Frau Merkel had said, uh, wir schaffen das, we'll, we'll, we'll manage it, uh, that, that led them to let them in in the expectation they could go up to Macedonia, into mm. Hungary and on up the way. But now that's all been... Re- we've, we've got a worse situation today on that front as a result of having a common situation. And then the final one is common foreign policy. And I think that's best illustrated in two examples. Libya, where we're supposed to have a foreign policy, the Germans took a completely different line from the the, uh, the others. They said we shouldn't, you know, France and Ger- uh, Britain shouldn't go in. And the Ukraine, where we've been kind of uh, waggling a stick at the Russians and they've now, the, the Russian bear has turned, turned back and turned mm. toxic. And I think in, in each of those areas, the, 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 the EU is, is subtracting value and it, it, it no longer makes sense yeah. to the same degree <clears throat> that it did in the past. Yeah, John, I have to take a break, but I'd like to let you back in quickly on that. Just this question of overreach. It expanded too much. Um, the euro turned out to be failed policy, certainly for countries like Ireland. Migration is a threat if you're at the bottom of the heap and you're dependent on social welfare. And it just was a failure to listen to the people at the bottom and the people on the periphery in Europe. Well, as far as uh, the euro is concerned, you've got to look what would be the alternative if we didn't have the euro. We would have had competitive devaluation. You'd have had countries devaluing. You'd have had much more inflation. You'd have possibly the breakdown of free trade because uh, France might have devalued the franc vis-à-vis the Deutschmark in order to get a competitive advantage and the Germans would say, hold on, we're not prepared to let French goods in on the basis mm. that they're competitively priced because of a devaluation. So I, th- I think, I th- I think in fact, the euro hasn't been the disaster that Cormac has described. If Greeks got into problems, uh, it's because the Greek government and taxpayers borrowed too much money. If Ireland got into problems, it's because because we didn't supervise our banks and they borrowed too much money and lent on too much money. We brought those things on ourselves. Now, I'm, now you could say that because we were in the euro, it was easier for them to, to borrow the money. But we knew what we were doing or should have known what we were doing when we borrowed the money in the first place. So I don't think you can blame blame that on, on, the, on, on the euro. I, I also think that... Um, Immigration. Uh, the immigration problem that's now existing arises because of refugees. The Turks have had to take in these Syrians. So have the Lebanese and so have the Jor- Jordanians have to take in millions of them. And they're not in the European Union. So uh, the fact that there are refugees coming out of Syria is not d- caused by the European Union. It, and those refugees are people whom we have a moral and legal obligation to look after. If you want to know what's the cause of the war in Syria. Well, I think Britain should be examining its conscience. Britain and the United States are the ones that invaded Iraq 
which created chaos in that part of the world, which spilled over into Syria. And here, here are the British sort of washing their hands of the whole thing and saying, it's all Europe's fault. Well, it isn't. I'm sorry. This is more the fault of Tony Blair, George Bush and Tony Blair with the support indeed of Anne Widdicombe's party. Right. So we're using the Europe, uh, uh, European Union as a scapegoat. Look, I have to take a quick break. And when I come back, we'll be talking to Mary Kenny about what she and her family are going to do in the referendum. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about Brexit this morning in studio. Dan O'Brien, John Bruton and Cormac Lucy. And uh, we've had a text in. Check out the video on Facebook of Ming Flanagan, MEP, merely trying to view the TTIP information on our behalf. And you see the EU being held hostage by US lobbyists. I used to be very strongly pro-EU, but now we need a complete review. So we'll have to go and check out the video and see what all that is about. Um, Now, but Mary Kenny, columnist for the Irish Independent, is on the line. Mary, of course, lives (coughs) in England. Um, Mary, I gather your family is a bit divided on the issue of Brexit. Will you tell us what you're all going to do? Well, I'll tell you, Sarah, I'm speaking to you from uh, uh, near Dover in in Kent. And you can imagine the the vote leave uh, flags are going up all over this part of the world because it's very... It's the nearest point to France. We can see France from the um, fr- from the beach. I think it's lovely being able to see France from the beach because I spent some of my youth in France. Indeed, I remember the time when de Gaulle was so emphatic about never letting Britain into the uh, European Union and when the French were <laughs> very hostile to Britain's entry and now they're begging Britain to stay. So it's interesting the way history turns around that way. But um, I would have a vote here, of course, um, but I will abstain because I will abstain on Ireland's behalf because I feel it probably isn't in Ireland's interest as as, as John and, 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 and Dan O'Brien have outlined. But um, well, why would you not vote to stay in then if you're worried about Ireland? Well, I suppose I feel I don't feel entitled to really vote on behalf of the United Kingdom. I'm not British. I hold an Irish passport. I still have a home in Ireland. Um, and so therefore I feel, uh, you know, I'm voting, I would be voting for a future which is, uh, uh, which I'm sort of not entitled to make a, a, a decision right. about. Also, both my sons are Brexiteers. Um, and I suppose I feel a certain kind of, why would I go out and cancel their vote as well? Um, I mean, I have a cousin who's also from Dublin, the same, and she's married to an Englishman too. And her husband is passionate uh, Brexiteer. And she says, I don't know what to do. A lot of people say, I don't know what to do. A lot of Irish people I meet say, I don't quite know what to do yet. You know, it's still in the balance of a lot of people examining our consciences, as we used to be taught. Um, but my older son would be um, very strong on the points that Cormac has outlined about poorer people. I mean, actually, small traders, that's where you see it. The small traders have been sort of losing out. Um, and the small traders around here tied up in, 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 in red tape, uh, you know. And uh, uh, the small traders saying, look, it's the big shots, it's the big cheeses, it's, it's the posh people, it's the toss against the, the likes of us. Um, and he would feel quite strongly that, that uh, working class people, you know, uh, 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 and, and younger people, they can't get on the property la- mm. ladder and so on. Now, my, older, my younger son, he works in London, 
uh, with a parliamentary think tank and I, he's got a more he would have a political feeling very much as Michael Gove has outlined I mean M- Michael Gove has said when I was uh, a cabinet minister every time I, when I was minister for education every time I tried to make a decision my civil servants said Brussels won't allow it. Brussels won't let us do this. And so therefore that really pushes a button about sovereignty. Now it is ironic, really. I mean, we have been celebrating 1916 over this last month, and absolutely rightly so. But 1916 underlines over and over again the point of, of sovereignty. The unfettered control of Irish destiny is written into the proclamation of the Republic. So, I mean, that does really uh, um, highlight something which every nation is entitled to, that sense of sovereignty. But, um, so right, I but do just understand on that, on that, you know, I was talking about nationalism earlier. You know, are we not really in a world now where mostly due to globalisation and the acceptance that nationalism did bring us war, that this is just an outdated concept. We need to just get beyond this and accept that we're all from Earth and we're all in this together. Well, I suppose so, Sarah, but um, nationalism, like like religion or like money, like anything else, it depends how it's used. I mean, there's good nationalism, which we call patriotism. And I, I, I would say some, some very just wars have been fought in the name of patriotism. Uh, and, and I would say, um, quite rightly so, I mean, extreme nationalism, when it becomes xenophobia, when it becomes hatred of other people, of course is absolutely odious and does cause wars, though money causes wars as well. Um, so I think it's possible to have a sense of patriotism for you know, your own country mm. um, uh, without feeling um, um, some sort of bitter xenophobia. Indeed, some of the Brexiteers are saying, we're world people, we're world traders. Uh, people like Charles Moore, you know, who, yeah. who would be a Thatcher's I mean, he he completely uh, puts aside this question of trade deals. He said trade is done between people. It's you know there's never there's never actually been a trade uh, uh, um, a treaty between the European Union and and America. Now, and, so and, and you know the, so, so all these things are in the, these are things that we all talk about. Yeah. About so the polls table. the polls at the moment show that Remain are are still in the lead. But what's your own gut from all the conversations? that you're having? Well, um, I think really uh, I would say the Romanians as um, <laughs> Nigel Farage calls them uh, would have uh, the edge probably and also they've got all the rich people behind them as the, as the Brexiteers say they've got all the big corporations you know they've got Obama they've got all those people saying you know But that uh, could be a backlash like people could react against they that can. Yes, that's true and and. and People do say that, actually. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, the, I, I suppose, you know, the, the point that um, perhaps, you know, jobs will be lost. Young people, apparently, are much more worried about things like their roaming charges on their mobile phones going up, you know, or whether you know, that... Uh, but, of course, on the other hand, um, but I think it will be probably quite close. One of the interesting points, of course, is that young people tend to be more pro-EU, but young people don't vote as much. Mm. Older people vote much more. This is why older people are valuable to politicians and to the whole, um, to, you know, to, 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 you know, to, to um, the, our, our political constructs, because older people go out and vote. They're very conscientious about that. We have that, that here, too, so, as we well know. 
Um, look, Mary, I have to leave it there for the minute. Um, or Dan, do you could, want could, to say yeah, something could, to Mary? Uh, Mary Dan has a question. Dan O'Brien, just just to say, we've never met, but I've always been a great admirer of your of your of your writing. Um, just uh, on on that issue of business and who's in favour, I, I think the Farage people like to portray it as it's the little guy against the big guy, and that's a meme that's out there at the moment in 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 Western politics that it's anti-establishment. As you said, Mary, you know, there's an awful lot of business people in Britain who want to leave because they believe there'll be a bonfire of Brussels red tape if if Britain <laughs> leaves. Uh, so I, I think it's important to say that it's it's not a the rich and the powerful against the little guy. Uh, there are a lot of business people in Britain who, who want to leave on the basis that they think it'll be good for their business. That's interesting. Yes, that's interesting. Uh, Cormac, yeah. what would you say to Mary, though, about this idea of the Irish voting? Like, I know that <clears throat> Irish politicians here have been urging the Irish in Britain to vote to remain. But she makes a legitimate point. Is it really her place and the place of the Irish to decide Britain's destiny? Well, I suppose if you're living in Britain and you're a long term resident there, you're as entitled to vote. You know, it's, it's up to British legislators to determine who is and isn't mm. entitled to vote. And uh, it sounds like Mary is perfectly entitled to vote. Now, the, she raised another point, which was uh, the generational one, that this is going to be a vote with a long-term impact and why should her vote partially cancel out the vote of her children? And that might be a, a more important factor. Mm-hmm. I, I would Dan. also say that I don't think the European Union is responsible for globalisation. It's a means whereby one can control and manage globalisation. Secondly, I would say that if poorer people are losing out, that's a matter for the member states. It's member states that levy taxation, not the European Union. And if the British tax system is unfair to people at the bottom end of the income distribution, that's a failure of the British state to impose taxes in a way that will distribute the income adequately. Welfare rates, for example, in the UK are much lower than they are here because we decide, have decided, that we want to protect the lower income group more than is the decision in the UK. And that's not, the UK's decision in that matter is not an EU responsibility, it's a UK responsibility. Yeah, but I think it's more about um, the um, migration, say, from Eastern Europe, you know, westwards, and that you've got downward pressure on wages... You know, and people well, I mean, there are certain the types of work, for example, horticultural work, which you will not get native English people to do. The only way, and I know this is the case also in County Meath, where there's people producing flowers, for example, they, the only way they can get anyone to work is to bring people in on a seasonal basis from Romania. There's work that will only be done by people who've come in from Eastern Europe. And we're all enjoying much better services at a lesser price, thanks to the contribution that those people are making. And we don't, they are also, it's so fair to say, Eastern European immigrants living in Britain are paying far more tax in on average uh, than they are taking out of the system. The, the reverse of the case with UK natives living in Britain. So I, I, I think there's, a, there's I think the concern actually is not so much about East Europeans, but somehow or other people have got it into their heads that UK decisions to allow in people from the Indian subcontinent are were made by the EU. They were made by the own, their own UK authorities to issue those uh, immigration permits. Now, they may have been right or they may have been wrong, but it wasn't a UK decision. There's a, a lot of 
insufficient information, I think, circulating in the UK at the moment. Would you say ignorance? I wouldn't use that term because it's a counterproductive term, but I think people... And I, I also say, I'd say to Mary Kenny, whom I, like Dan O'Brien, greatly admire, mm. it's a cop-out to abstain. Ooh. You have a responsibility to vote. And what, one has a responsibility to vote as a citizen, not just to vote for what I feel like for myself, but as a citizen for the common good. I'll let Mary back in on that. Mary, are you copping out? Well, I'll have to go back and examine my conscience again. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things I have been saying to people, you know, it's said that about a quarter of uh, British people have an Irish grandparent. And I have been saying, if you are worried about EU, now's the time to apply for an Irish passport, by the way. Are you going to come home, Mary? You should come home. (laughs) We need you here. You might be sent home, Mary, if you vote no. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. Irish citizens in the UK may no longer have the right to live in the UK if they leave. Well, well, not only is, is Mary a great writer, but so too was her late husband, uh, Richard Did. West. Indeed. And he wrote a great biography of Tito, who presided over another multinational empire that overreached itself and ended up breaking up. Now, I'm not arguing for the EU to break up, but I think there is a core point here of political constructs driven by people at the top in the face of people at the bottom who don't consent. Okay, I've got to come in here. Now, both John and Cormac Actually, are I'm going to let Mary go now, okay? Mary, I'll let you go. And thanks so much for helping us out this morning. We really appreciate well, it. thank you for a very interesting discussion. Okay. Dan, okay can I just take on. issue with both John and, and Cormac, just in terms of the, the comparisons they're making with sort of empires and stuff like that. EU is a t- totally unique kind of construct. And to compare it with the sort of Soviet Union, as John has done, or, or, or the Yugoslav Federation uh, dictatorship, uh, I would totally say that is wrong. The EU is a democracy. It's got its problems, uh, but it is com- it is absolutely emphatically not like the Soviet Union, not like the Yugoslav oh, no, Federation. It's, it's, it's actually clear about that. Excuse me, may, may I yeah. offer a counterpoint? The, the Five Presidents Report was published last year the five presidents, the EU, the Parliament, the Commission and all the rest of it. And uh, the very first sentence of the section dealing with economics says, quote, the euro is a successful and stable currency. Now, I'm sorry, that is just false. I agree with that. But Cormac, but, can, but sorry, it, it, sorry Cormac, the point, knowing, the point no, is, is the EU you, Soviet your, Union? Hear me out. Yeah. It no. is knowingly no, no. false. No, I, I didn't say it. It's not It is knowingly false. And... I lived in Eastern Germany shortly after German reunification. I've read the history of Eastern Germany. The people who were in the Communist Party in Eastern Germany, they were not evil people. They were profoundly misguided people, some of whom were willing to use evil to advance their goals. And we we, we, we forget that the road to hell is paved with good intentions and it's not enough for the EU to waive its good intentions. I, could I just say two, two things. First of all, I, I was using the example of Yugoslavia and, mm. and Soviet Union and Austro-Hungary as well because, to show that federations can break mm. up. We should recognise that the EU is fragile. We cannot take the EU for granted. That was the only point I was making. Well, and, and you know, if you, I, I, Brendan Sims, the Irish historian, him, yeah. has written about this, and he's he made the exact comparison that I've just made. 
that we should not assume that the EU will always be well, there. I think and I, do, I also don't agree yeah. with Cormac in saying that the euro has been a failure. I don't believe that at all. The only way one could say that is if one knew what would have happened if we didn't have a euro. And I believe we would have had devaluation, inflation, loss of competitiveness and barriers in Europe. And I don't think that would have been good for anybody. OK, look, I have to take a break. But when I come back, I'm going to ask, you know, is war really um, impossible if the if Europe breaks up when you see what happened in Yugoslavia? That's after these. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the EU this morning and we've drifted into nationalism and violence. You know, Dan, we can think that we're a million miles from Syria and from Yugoslavia and everything, but we're human beings at the end of the day. If you stir up this nationalism, we can't say where it would end. It's true. And somebody's said that nationalism is still the most powerful force in the world. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. But let's let I, I, I've always been pro EU, but I don't agree with a lot of the EU people who say that the EU has been this giant peace process. OK, to my mind, um, NATO has been much more important in terms of keeping the peace in Europe and even excluding that. There's been a huge decline in war in the world since the Second World War. You can't say that the reason two Latin American countries haven't gone to war is because of the European Union. There are a lot of reasons why countries have, there's for a decline in interstate conflict. And this is a big sort of uh, subject of discussion. This is the Stephen Pinker thing, it, the pr- Better Angels of Our Nature. What a great book. Yeah. Okay, so, that, that, yeah. the, the, so that's, that's one example of it. Um, so in my view, I don't think there's a risk in Europe that we're certainly in the current environment that we're going to countries are going to go to war. Is Greece going to go to war with its, with Macedonia? You know, countries just, you know, we've never been so demilitarized. Um, the, 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 the amount we spend on, on defense and armaments in Europe is just nothing. Uh, compared to how it's been historically, it's been declining. Really? Absolutely, like right. the, you know, all this fantasy that people in, in this country have come up with in, in, in EU debates about conscription or whatever. Conscription is going out of fashion everywhere. Armies are getting smaller. Defence spending is falling. You know, the, the, the European continent has never been as demilitarized, and it's becoming less and less. If you think of the political debate in every European country. People are not saying let's spend more on our armies. They're saying let's spend more on welfare, health and education. Now, quick one on the finance. Uh, Texter says um, your guests haven't mentioned the likely major inflow of financial services, business relocation from the city in London will do well if they leave. Just yeah, I think that's, a, that's that. absolutely right. If you look, if you draw, take a piece of paper and you draw the pros and cons of Brexit, huge number of negatives. But the one upside for us is the potential for investment in the UK that's folk companies that are focused on the European market who then see, we don't know what the trade deal, coming back to that issue, we don't know what the trade deal for, for, for trading with Europe is going to be. So we're better off to go into the European Union to sell into the European Union. And we're, the, we're you know, a pretty obvious choice for a lot of companies. Now, John, before the break, you mentioned Brendan Sims. And I think his book was on finest hour. And it was about how the EU stood by while um, the Bosnian... It was one of his books. One of his books, okay. Yes. But the he has po- a new one out about... Uh, 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 he has an, an article in the New Statesman in November yeah. which compared um, the breakup of, of the three federations that existed yeah. at the beginning of the 20th... or during the 20th century. So could century. you see it happening? Could you, you, you see oh, yes, breakup? Yes, because I think... One if, out, if, all if, out. I think if Britain leaves, France will then uh, possibly see a National Front uh, president and France may opt out and Germany then may feel, well, we're not going to continue on supporting other places you could see the whole thing break up now I don't think that would lead to war but on the other in the shorter or even medium term but I do think that the interdependence that the EU creates
creates because we you know we're we're export to one another and we're not going to cut off our own export markets by going to war with them and the habit of meeting every every month or so that makes provides a sort of a safety valve for statespeople to uh, resolve problems by talking rather than by fighting. I, I think that's a value that the EU has, which is intangible. You can't quantify it, but I think it's it's enormous. It, it's a sort of a st- underlying structure of peace. Now, as far as Brexit and Ireland is concerned, financial services we could gain, we could lose dramatically in agriculture. And uh, agriculture is agri- still the biggest. We it? have a huge mm-hmm. export market to the UK, which we used to be disadvantaged on before the EU, where they paid subsidies to their own farmers. Irish farmers didn't qualify, and Irish products was pri- were priced off the UK market, beef in particular. If, if one of our, we're going to have, if Britain leaves, have a very aggressive negotiating strategy to a get as much financial services out of Britain over here, but also protect our export market for Irish goods, and finally the vital issue of the border. Mm. Are we going to have passport controls and customs posts along the border? If Britain doesn't get an agreement, we'll have to have them. And Imagine the damage that that will do by creating isolation of the nationalist community from the rest of Ireland or isolation of the unionist community from the UK. Either way, either will be major destabilising. So Cormac Lucy, Jeremy Corbyn was talking to Obama when he was in the UK and he said most of it was a discussion about global corporate power as opposed to political power and the disengagement of a lot of people from the political system. In one way is this debate peripheral because the real issue is the neoliberal conspiracy against the masses and it's the rule of the corporation not the nation state anymore in the world now. Well I think there are two answers to that. I think uh, entities, you know, I don't agree with John that the EU might break up. I think if the EU didn't exist, something like it would have to be invented. My problem is the EU has gone too far. Uh, so so if, if we don't have international groups of governments, they cannot deal with large multinationals. Uh, you know, I think that's the central point. There. Right. Okay. Uh, and so, so that'd be the main argument I would make, that the EU has gone too far and needs to step back a bit rather than keep ploughing on, moving forward. You've compared it to a tennis club. Yeah, it's like somebody joining a tennis club and then the tennis club says, oh, we're going to have a table quiz and you go to the table quiz and then they say, well, we'll go away for a week on the Camino. Uh, And and the EU has kind of got to a situation where we're all living together in a hippie commune, getting married to each other. And it's, it's, it's just gone beyond a tennis club to something that wasn't originally intended and isn't serving the interests of its members. Okay, well, that is the last word. Oh, John, do you want to... Oh, well, the members decide. It's members elected on the Council of Ministers and elected people in the European Parliament. They're the ones that decide EU law. The, the French, EU the is French a democracy. The voted against the Constitution and they got 99% of it through the Lisbon Treaty, whether they wanted it or not. Okay, I shall leave it there. Cormac Lucy, John Bruton, Dan O'Brien, many thanks for coming in this morning. Aoife Breen and Joe Coffey produced. Marion Kennedy was on sound. Bobby Kerr is up next. Thank you for listening.